Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Opiates have gone by many names in their millennia-long entanglement with humans, in an ever-refined chain of pleasure. Poppy tears, opium, heroin, morphine. With the advent of synthetic opiates like fentanyl, we're seeing addiction and devastation on a scale unmatched in the 5,000-year history of the drug. But also a return to some of the same trends and patterns and failed attempts at regulation that have haunted our attempts to control it. In her new book, Milk of Paradise, cultural historian Lucy Ingalls tells the long story of opium and how its history is really our history, from trade and war to medicine and money. She joins us from London, home to one of the empires that drove the opium trade for centuries. Thanks so much for joining us, Lucy. I'm very excited to talk about drugs. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's nice. It's good. People are <laughs> in two camps because sometimes they say, what on earth would you write about you know, opium and heroin for? And then other people are like, oh, I'm really fascinated. <laughs> well, that's my first question. So um, why devote four years of your life to writing about opium and heroin and morphine? <laughs> well, it, it probably shouldn't have been four years, but the interest was sparked uh, a long time ago, when my husband and I had some family members who were very ill over quite long periods, and we were managing morphine schedules. And we became quite blasé to having it around. And people had very different views of sort of street heroin, which is sordid and, and terrifying in many ways. But medical grade heroin is fine when it's being dispensed by a doctor. Just that whole concept fascinated me. So what does the history of opium have to tell us about the current state of that opium slash morphine dichotomy? Like why start with Neolithic opium growing? What does that help us understand about the present? I think what would have happened originally is that people just tested everything around them constantly. And what's the, the really fascinating thing is that there's no such thing as the wild opium poppy. Uh, they grow in the wild, but it's a genetically engineered plant that we began engineering along with the very, very earliest um, wheats and barleys, and which indicates that we were 
pursuing it for pain relief, presumably, at, at that time in a really quite structured way. So things like the horned poppy, which is uh, still used in some countries in the world as cough medicine, has a, a very characteristic uh, reaction for a lot of people if they were eating it. They would struggle to eat enough to overdose because it would give them quite bad stomach cramps. And so that must have been really initially why we used it because it had an inbuilt mechanism. The earliest ancestor had an inbuilt mechanism that stopped human beings damaging themselves. But over time, we discovered that henbane counteracts these stomach cramps and lets you consume the opium in uh, larger quantities. So all of these checks and balances are going along for, for thousands of years before we get into documented history. Right. That thing about henbane is so interesting to me because now we have sort of the same thing with Narcan being a counter to overdose by fentanyl. Yeah. It's really weird how that sort of has come full circle in a way. Yeah, it's it's just an odd mechanism that's that's unique to opiates. And uh, it doesn't happen with almost any other drug. And this compound has really evolved with settled society, treating uh, malaria, dysentery, respiratory disorders, let alone toothache and things like that. So it has come to signify not only a relief from pain, it's relief from the fear of pain and illness. And people who become addicted to it become psychologically as addicted as they are physically. Yeah, one of the things you said about opium sort of growing up alongside settled human society really rings true because Milk of Paradise is ostensibly a history of opium. But one of your arguments is that it's so tied up with the history of everything else humans have ever done that you can't help but talk about like agriculture and commerce and medicine and war. Yeah. So how did the cultivation of opium drive changes in all of these different spheres? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, early on, it drove it because people carried it with them as uh, one of many forms of currency. If you were leaving home, you would travel with money, coinage, but also different commodities that you could use. Poppy seed heads were, were one of those early commodities. So that's a very basic level. But then as we know, as it became more desirable, the legend of it really spread through Western Europe and people are travelling on the Silk Roads it became something that passed along with people, where, where, wherever people were. And so it began to drive commerce. It was one of um, the big spices. We don't think of it as a spice now, clearly. We think of it as a medicine or a drug. But it was up there with cloves and cinnamon and uh, the early explorers in the Age of Discovery were sent out to, it was one of the things on their shopping list. Wherever you go <laughs> out into the world, you have to find this and bring it back because this is what we want. And then, of course, it was a large driver of empire uh, after that in the early modern world. Right. War, for example, you know, the synthesis of morphine and that enabling soldiers to fight on in the oh, Civil yeah. War and then later in World Wars One and Two, and even all the way back to Neolithic times, maybe... Yeah, I think definitely. Well, as I said in the book, some of the earliest 
people, the uh, linear band camera and, and some of the people living in what's now Switzerland, uh, suffered tremendous rates of war trauma, up to 30, 32%. You know, 2%, 3% is indicative of a society that's at war. So they would how they continued, and we know that they used opiates, uh, but you would probably imagine something that would just give you oblivion on that level would be very desirable. And we know that that is again echoed in conflicts of the 20th century when people are facing gigantic artillery. uh, and, And artilleries that were designed to damage the human body in incredibly inventive ways. Uh, Korea was was one that was horrendous, where weaponry was designed to damage the pelvis in in particular, and um, which we see again now with uh, Afghanistan with IEDs. It's the strongest pain reliever we have, so it goes hand in hand with war. So it seems like soldiers and the veterans of wars have always been users and then abusers sometimes of opiates. Have there been any dramatic shifts in the demographics of who uses these drugs over the centuries? It hasn't, it hasn't changed in in lots of ways. Uh, The development of laudanum, opiates basically macerated in alcohol, was a way that women could become quite secret addicts because they weren't drinking alcohol they weren't smoking. It wasn't a visible social act that they were doing. They would do it in secret. And also using it to sedate children and, and make their lives a lot more manageable, frankly. Well, ultimately unmanageable, but just managing day to day. And that was a big change, the 19th century with the addiction of, of women in Western Europe and America. So in the, the 19th century, laudanum is a working woman's drug that enables her to keep going in difficult situations. Or it's a lady who is probably in her 30s and she has maintained a facade, a very respectable facade, but has become a a laudanum addict over time. Um, And there's lots of of dismissive things about ladies who have nothing to do but lay on on a couch and drink their days away with laudanum. But in the early 20th century, it definitely moves towards corruption of young women. When you start to see young women appearing in the media, visiting these dens or these establishments, there becomes a huge outcry. Right. And you talk about how that idea of corrupted young white women was really driven by racism, yes. by the anti-Chinese sentiment in California, but also other places that led to the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? Yes. The Chinese Exclusion Act was terrible uh, for many reasons. And we were coming up to, well, they were calling it the liberal era, but it, it wasn't at all. It was We were moving back towards social cleansing in many ways. That was a real shame because, I mean, America had one of the best public health services early on and great people working on theories of addiction, offering help to people, offering detox programs. And then it goes back to prominent people, the um, Rockefellers, and the, the racist aspect of it that was paid for by very prominent people and prominent publications to keep churning out this material, particularly targeting uh, the young black male population, was really bad stuff. So all of that 
racist propaganda was in service of getting opium prohibited in 1922, which it was. Did it work? Did fewer people use opium? No, prohibition doesn't work. The only thing that stops people being addicts at a fairly reliable percentage level of the population is absolute lack of supply. And prohibition does not guarantee lack of supply. Supply was disrupted by the two world wars. And in the Second World War, it got down very low. And uh, there was very little medical grade uh, heroin available for people in desperate, so end of life circumstances. And addiction did drop in that time, but there wasn't really a choice. And as soon as there's any kind of supply, it just jumps back up to the same kinds of levels. So absent world war, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but what we're seeing now is is massive. And it's it's driven by so many different factors. It's a combination of ones we've seen before, but it's making this sort of terrible catastrophe by combining all of them at once very quickly. Which factors are you talking about? So we've got the war in Afghanistan, which has resulted in increased production there. It always does. 2013, morphine-based seizures. In This is just an example that shows you the levels of production. Uh, in Afghanistan were 132 tonnes. In Iran, there were 24. In Pakistan, there were nine. And those figures are also mirrored in the precursors that are used to make street heroin. And everyone is more mobile than they've ever been before, can move around the world huge quantities, just kilos and kilos of it at any one time. Also, it's the synthetic opioids that are being manufactured very easily by very skilled chemists all around the world, mainly um, in Southeast Asia. And so hits are becoming cheaper and cheaper and very difficult economic circumstances for a lot of rural poor in America in terms of education, opportunities, healthcare, and of course the pharmaceutical corporations over-prescribing gargantuanly in the 1990s. So now we're seeing all of these factors coming together and it, it is an epidemic uh, and it's incredibly sad. It also just makes me think again back to the racialization of this drug because opium and cocaine were super racialized in the 20s, as you said, and then in the 80s and 90s we had heroin yeah. being super racialized. But now that there's a wider, whiter demographic yeah. pursuing opioids, it seems like it's suddenly an epidemic and not a drug problem. Absolutely. Hit the nail on the head with that. So what people do is... It's again, it's a conflation of the uh, circumstances. So the the drug, the heroin epidemics in Chicago were because uh, in the black communities were because poor black workers were living in these areas, male workers usually, and so much heroin was being funneled through Chicago and then later New York that in the 70s and 80s, as we know, desperate times for heroin in use amongst the black communities in New York, that's because the the highway has changed and the highway affects these communities because it's easier to get anything through these communities, not necessarily just opiates, because you know of lack of social cohesion and all sorts of different reasons. Now that it's so endemic amongst 
largely white populations, uh, particularly in the southern states, the tables are turned. How would you evaluate the United States' approach to the current opioid epidemic? How are we doing? Not great. It's largely to do with the healthcare system. So it's based on giving the consumer who's going to pay, on some level, what they want, which is why a lot of these pill addictions were created over the last 20 years. In Britain, you, you cannot get, unless you are very, very sick or post-surgery, a prescription for morphine. And that is absolutely not the case in America. I mean, people, some places in Louisiana, there are multiple, multiple prescriptions for every person in one town. Who, who is getting all these drugs? They're being sold into the supply chain. And I think a lot of people focus very much on heroin as this great evil, which in many ways it is. But diversion of illicit supply is one thing that I came across a lot. And many people haven't talked about, in America, diversion of illicit supply. Until that is addressed, this won't abate. So if prohibition doesn't work, what does work? You mentioned in your book some other methods, like uh, the one used on the Thai side of the Golden Triangle with the royal projects of subsidizing farmers to grow crops other than poppies. Do those kinds of methods work? Uh, Yes and no. The royal project is an interesting one. It takes a lot of infrastructure and a lot of money to do that. And crop replacement in places like Afghanistan doesn't work because you're not going to give up growing opium poppies, which don't have a shelf life. And once you've harvested, you're not going to start going back to growing melons if you can't get them to market because all the roads are smashed. So those kinds of crop replacement idea isn't going to work in places that are struggling with war. But... um, I mean, Portugal has done very well. Spain and Italy are going to follow with uh, a more Portuguese approach. And the situation was desperate in in Lisbon when when they introduced it. And it recognised that you couldn't essentially stop people using opiates, but you could not make them into criminals for doing it. And through that method, they try and take away, remove a large amount of the social stigma that surrounds the drug. And that's proven to be very effective in Portugal. And also uh, Finland has a high number of addicts, but they choose different methods. So, So one of the most famous ones that we know is methadone maintenance treatment. And Lots of addicts don't like methadone because it doesn't provide the big rush that heroin provides. It puts you in quite a steady state. So methadone tends to pacify you. But in Finland and other Scandinavian countries, they have um, a drug called pronorphin. The drug itself has a slightly different effect again, and it seems to work better socially for those countries. Now, whether it would work in Spain or Italy, we don't know. Um, But the UK is moving back towards heroin maintenance treatment so addicts will be treated with heroin not methadone and that's going to happen from I think this year in Scotland and that is a really interesting move forwards for the way we view addiction really interesting repercussions for how it might be implemented in America I think 
With a history this long, it's hard to talk about everything. We didn't even touch on the opium wars, for example, so you'll just have to read Lucy Ingalls' Milk of Paradise to get the full story. And if you're interested in more reporting on what Lucy was talking about, how licit drugs find their way into the illicit market, there's been some really stellar reporting about that side of the opioid epidemic, but also about how journalists should report on the opioid epidemic. Links in the show notes as usual. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.